Hi, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am delighted to be joined on the phone today by Brenda Davis. Hello, Brenda. Hello, how are you? Very well. So I'm, I'm, oh, ex- good. I'm excited to talk to you. I saw your presentation um, at the, the uh, North American Vegetarian Society Summer Festival, and uh, you were mentioned in a call that I did last week with Joseph Gonzalez of, of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And right. you have been involved in the plant-based field as a, an educator and a researcher for for a long time you're one of the pioneers um first let's let's just get you know um today i want to talk to you about a project that you were heavily involved in um dealing with with diabetes in the marshall islands but before before we get to that i would love to know just what what got you into this world in the first place did you grow up in a plant-based vegan family or did you have some sort of journey to get here (laughs) Well, thanks for asking that, Howard. I appreciate it. It's a, it's, it's kind of a, maybe a little bit actually of an unusual story. I, I grew up a little bit all over the place because my dad was in the Air Force and I definitely didn't grow up in a vegetarian family. As a matter of fact, I think the first vegetarian I ever met, I was about 12 years old and, uh, I just thought it was the oddest thing I'd ever seen. I found it quite intriguing though. But I had never met a real-life vegetarian <laughs> before that. So I grew up most of my life in northern Ontario, where it's basically hunting and fishing territory. So, so um, yeah, vegetarian was very, very far removed from my world back then. But I always had, um, you know, a, a heart for the animals. I can remember when I was three years old, um, my parents took me to a bullfight in Spain. We were living in Germany at the time. And I can still remember to this day being absolutely horrified because I thought we were going to see bulls fight. And when I realized what was happening, and I really did realize what was happening, I was only three years old, but I um, I just couldn't understand why these 10,000 people were allowing this to happen. I can still remember that I couldn't understand why the adults weren't stopping it. And uh, I remember when the bull got a point, I jumped up on my seat and I started yelling, Yay, bull! Go, oh bull! <laughs> and, and so my parents were absolutely mortified. Because when, when the bull got a point, you could have heard a pin drop in the stadium, except for this little kid up on the chair screaming. <laughs> but oh. Anyway, uh, so I, I, you know, when I became a teenager and in my young adult life, I, I was quite in, intrigued with... Uh, vegetarianism and I, I went to university to become a registered dietitian and we learned, you know, that vegetarian diets were dangerous and vegan diets were, you know, uh, or I should say that vegetarian diets were risky and vegan diets were downright dangerous. That's pretty much all we learned about vegetarian nutrition. And, uh, but I, you know, it's the strangest thing. It was, it was my interaction with um, one of our best friends who who was um, a hunter actually, and he was he was on his way deer hunting, and he he stopped by the house for a coffee on his way, and as he was driving over, I thought, how can I make him feel really guilty about what he's going to do? And so I I said to him, I said, you know, I don't get why you'd want to do this. I, you know, going out in the woods and shooting such a beautiful innocent creature, I said. 
You know, it, it, to me, sports, you know, you call it a sport, but to me, sports are when both teams have the same equipment. This animal has no defense against you. And I said, you know, the only thing I can think of is it makes you feel like more of a man. And his response to me was, was what really what changed the course of my life. Because he responded, he said, you know, Brenda, he said, just because you don't have the guts to pull the trigger does not mean you are not responsible for the trigger being pulled every time you buy a piece of meat camouflaged in cellophane in the grocery store. He said, at least the animals I eat have had a life. Mm. Take, it the, take a look at the ones that you're eating. Wow, and that was uh, that was quite a gift. It was, and I I actually took it to heart because I thought I he just I had no he silenced me he he silenced me, and so I decided to go and and really look at where my food was coming from, and you know it probably wasn't two weeks later that somebody dropped John Robbins' Diet for a New America on my desk. <laughs> I was the public health nutritionist in our community teaching you know, the four food groups. And, uh, and and somebody asked me if this was a reliable resource, and I said, I don't know, I haven't read it. Uh, and so would you lend it to me? And it was just, the timing was amazing, and I and I, I really started to, to research the whole thing, and it was in very short order that I thought, I can't do this anymore. I, can, I, I don't even know if I can do my profession anymore, because everything I do is based on the four food groups. And um, and so it was a very uh, difficult time personally because I thought, you know, I just went to school for five years to you know. And uh, anyway, it was it was difficult. But I decided when I decided to become vegetarian. This is the other interesting thing, is I went to my husband, who I had been married to for about ten years at this point, and we've been married thirty five years now. And I said to him, you know, and he grew up in northern Ontario. This hunter was his best friend. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, I, I really would like to become a vegetarian. Would 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 you be willing or would, would this be okay with you? Would you be willing to do this with me? And his response just blew me away. He said, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> he said, I would so love to be a vegetarian, he said, because I've always wanted to live as softly as I could on this planet, and I think that's a really good way of doing that. Mm. So that was that was a bonus for me, I'll tell you. Um, and at that time, our children were four and one, and they're now 28 and 25. So that was how I ended up becoming, and I decided at that point when I really looked at the research and I really looked at everything, I thought, I cannot leave this profession. Because if everybody who really gets it leaves this profession, there'll never, ever be any change from within. I said, I've got to educate my fellow dietitians. And so that's just what I've been doing. Wow. So, I've, you know, I've written um, eight books now on, on uh, the, the topic of doing vegetarian and vegan very, very well, making sure you don't blow it. I wrote one book on defeating diabetes, which is um, how I ended up getting involved in the Marshall Islands work. Right. So I was looking at, you know, your your body of work over the years, and I was sort of chuckling to myself because it, 
in, in a certain way, it reminded me of like a rock group from the 60s, you know, where they start out looking a certain way and they just go through this sort of inevitable evolution, you know, and then they get the long hair and the beards and they go electric and, and, and you know, not, not, not making the exact comparison, but you wrote a book called Becoming yeah. Vegetarian. Then you wrote a yeah. book called Becoming Vegan. Then you wrote a book called Becoming Raw. Could you talk, a, could, could you talk a little bit about, about whether that's a progression, whether that's, you know, how, how you think about it, the, yeah. the different ways that you can approach this way of eating? Well, I, first of all, a disclaimer, I have to be really honest with you. Our becoming vegetarian is really becoming vegan in disguise. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, we've never, Vasanto and I are ethical vegans. Um, these books are, are called Becoming Vegetarian because they appeal to a little bit of a different audience. And but we are in even in becoming vegetarian, encouraging an entirely plant-based diet. Although the food guide allows for uh, people who can, cons- you know, consume milk or eggs, but we don't actually promote their consumption in any way, shape, or form. Okay. So, so, so the, so the so, change was more marketing. It, 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 the, the, to the be t- honest, it, it, it was. Good, now, good. in in a way, though, it is an evolution too, because. Because what the world was ready for was different in 1995 than in, you know, 2000 even. And so, so yes, we went on to write, you know, write it, becoming vegan because it seemed people were ready for that. And now we've actually just rewritten, we wrote becoming vegan in 2000. We've got becoming vegan express edition, which is geared to consumers. And this is a whole new book. It's completely rewritten. And we've got another book that will be coming out in January called Becoming Vegan Comprehensive Edition, which will be over 600 pages fully references, uh, fully referenced, which will be suitable for, you know, health pra- professionals, people that really want the details and the references. Huh. I, I I was watching you you talking about those two books at the end of your presentation. I was thinking, boy, it would be really hard for me to take anything out of anything I've written. How, how did you decide to, to to how to cut a six hundred page book into an express edition for consumers? <laughs> oh, you can't even imagine. Um, what, what, I didn't decide to do that at all. We wrote the book, which was going to be was was the big book. It was probably about eight hundred pages. <laughs> And our publisher just said, there is no way we can sell this to the average consumer. It's just too dense. It's too much. It's, it's, it's too complicated. It's, you know, and all of these things. He said, we've, we've got to make, he said, we love the book. It is so suitable for a certain segment of the population, but we've got to pare it down and get one that is a, a bit of a condensed version for the general public, something under 300 pages. So they actually hired an editor to, to do that. And, of course, the edits went back and forth. <laughs> I can't even tell you how many times because when somebody else takes your work and tries to cut it down and doesn't have quite the same understanding as you do <clears throat> about the science, it was one and a half tasks, I'll tell hmm. you. <laughs> But but it got done and uh, and the first printing is out and you know we just went through and have probably thirty or forty edits for the second printing because of that you know trying to smooth everything out so it's it's in the you know the kind of shape we want it to be in but it it's really getting there so. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> okay. So so the vegetarian and vegan books are essentially the same message with just vegan is now more acceptable than it was even five or ten years ago. What about what about raw? Do you do you oh, think? Oh uh, yes, and then yeah, the, tr- the 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 raw book came out of a whole other deal. What actually happened was our publisher wanted us to do a book with um with a raw food chef with some nutrition information and. We didn't always agree on exactly, you know, what type of information was included, and we're we're more sort of science based, and so it was it was a bit tricky. Our publisher said, you know, the stuff you're talking about, the science uh, of raw nutrition, uh, nobody's ever published any of this stuff. We need to do a book on the science of, of mm. raw food eating, and 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 you know, it, nobody's ever really looked really looked at the claims uh, about enzymes and the need for enzymes and what about all the anti-nutrients, the hemagglutinins and the lectins, and, you know, so just on and on and on and are raw diets really nutritionally adequate? Uh, is there an advantage to eating cooked vegetables uh, 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 or raw vegetables over cooked vegetables and are the phytochemical uh, differences uh, substantial? And, you know, all of these issues, none of which that I know of, ha- have ever really been looked at from a science perspective. And so what we did was we, we took the claims that were being made in the raw food world and we looked at who they were quoting, these researchers they were quoting, and we went directly to the researchers and said, is, is this an accurate reflection of the work that you've been doing? <laughs> So that we could get it from them. Wow. I, w- I would love to hear the, the, the cliff note version of what you found out, but I just, I want to say that that's one of the, the, the most confusing things when you get into the plant-based world is, you know, everyone's, you know, eating plants good. You know, eating junk food bad, <laughs> eating too much animal food bad. But, you know, and, th- and then that's the, that's the level of agreement. But then once you get into this world, it's like craziness. Like, you know, the debates about smoothies, about juicing, about raw, about gluten. And, yeah. and you hear, you know, yeah. it's, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> even, even people with, with science backgrounds, it feels like sometimes <laughs> get on a high horse and are, and, and will, um, you know, not need such a high standard of proof for the things they believe in? Um, yeah. Well, you know, my, my view, Howard, is really simple. It is that vegan can be done in many ways, and, and, and people can do well. Uh, some people need something a little different. than Like, not every, everybody is the same. <laughs> and so what works really well for one person may not work as well for another. And and so, you know, I think people can do raw, I think people can do, you know, high raw, I think people can do low fat, I think people can do Mediterranean style plant-based diets, they can do, you know, really whole foods, they can do uh, diets with a little bit more convenient foods or more traditional sort of vegan diet, and, and it's not so much, you know, w- which you choose, um, it, it matters more that, that you really meet your nutritional requirements. And are not overeating uh, calories that you're, you know, you're, and you're eating sufficient calories, of course, as well. And so, and there's a way of getting that accomplished in all of these different veins. So I think that's really important, and that's what we really try to do 
in becoming vegan, and we can learn things from one another. We can learn from the low-fat people, and we can learn from the raw people. I was, um, you know, really impressed with a lot of the things that the raw world has figured out in terms of reducing anti-nutrients, increasing phytochemicals. A lot of their food preparation techniques really do enhance the nutritional value of foods. And also, you're minimizing a lot of the products of oxidation that you're forming when you're cooking foods at high temperatures. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's just really, really interesting. But, you know, to me, what's optimal for most people is, you know, I've got my own ideas of that. and, And it's a bit of a combination. I think most people do really well on a diet that includes a lot of raw foods, but also includes some cooked foods, especially legumes, for example, as, um, which provide us with a lot of protein and iron and zinc and some of the nutrients that are a little more challenging to get on mm. a raw diet. Hmm. So I have, to, I have to ask you about that idea of people are different and need different things, because at a vegan conference, I was speaking to um, a... Uh, registered dietitian about that issue and as you may know there's a lot of people in the sort of paleo world or you know the institute for integrative nutrition is a real proponent of this idea of bioindividuality and they use Mm -hmm. that to say that there are many people who need a lot of meat in their diet a lot of animal foods Um, yeah and and i would i would completely disagree with that now i think when i say people are are uh unique some people are very metabolically efficient, and they don't do well with diets that are really high in fat and really dense and calorically dense. And other people, their whole family, they're just kind of this, you know, sort of skinny genes, and they, they, um, they, they just need something more substantial. Uh, they need more, more carbs. They need more fat. They need more calories. And uh, and some people, their digestive system, they're not, you know, they really need to get the anti-nutrients down. They need to be very, they're, they just are very sensitive in the way that they absorb things. And so there are those kinds of differences. I don't think, I don't believe that there are many people on the planet that truly have to have animal products. I think in, in most cases we can design a diet that would actually work very well for them. There are some people that don't convert um, alpha-linolenic acid to EPA or DHA very efficiently um, because their population has for generations consumed a lot of fish. So for those people, it may, it may be important to include some of this, you know, um, the microalgae that produces DHA and EPA, which is, of course, the same place fish gets their DHA and EPA from. So it's not that we have to eat the fish, but, you know, they might need to look at um, the, the supplements that include microalgae-based DHA and EPA. Gotcha. But paleo diet, you got me off on a, a tangent here because I actually, um, the paleo diet is becoming very, very popular. Uh, it is, uh, we actually included a couple pages on the paleo diet in, in the new books and what he, what I did was, you know, when I started really looking at the nutritional anthropology and uh, looked at some of Eaton's research, and, and he actually uh, came up with a, a, pr- a pretty good uh, estimation of, of what a typical paleo diet might look like in terms of calories and nutrients. And, 
And uh, I, I looked at that very, very carefully. And nutrients about 3,000 calories a day because these people were actually active, of course. And uh, so they need a lot of calories. And, and I looked at their intakes. And, and what I noticed was they were consuming over 10,000 milligrams of potassium. They were consuming over 600 milligrams of, of vitamin C. They were consuming over 100 grams of fiber. <laughs> you don't get any of those things from meat. And, and, and those intakes are over double what the average vegan would eat. Mm. So are they eating plants? You bet your booties are eating plants, and a lot of them. And so when you really look at this stuff, what I did is I took three days of paleo menus, recommended paleo menus off a very popular paleo website. I took three days' worth of vegan menus from our book, recommended vegan menus, and I analyzed both of those doing, using a nutritional analysis program and compared them to the estimates. I actually, of course, first, um, uh, you know, I, I, I corrected them all to be, to be uh, 3,000 calories or adjusted them to all be 3,000 calories so that, so that it would be a fair comparison with the paleo. But what I found is that, is that the, um, the today's paleo diet uh, contains, a, a, you know, just, it, well, it, it, it's, uh, it's extremely different than, than the true paleo diet. The, the fat intake is double. The saturated fat intake is triple. The fiber intake is about a third. The potassium intake is about a third. Uh, actually, the vegan diet came way closer to the old paleo diet or the real paleo diet than did the new paleo diet. There wasn't even any comparison. The only things the, the new paleo diet were closer on was protein, zinc, uh, and cholesterol, you know, uh, and that was about it. Everything else, the vegan diet was way closer on, way closer. Mm. So people, and the reason is, is that the new paleo people are centering their diet on animal products, meat. You know, people in Paleolithic era didn't eat near as much meat. They were, they were plant eaters and they, yes, they, consume meat, but it was, it, it, the meat they consumed contained maybe 10% fat, if that. Today, it's more like 40 or 50 or 60% fat. So huge differences in wild meat versus domestic meat, huge differences even in wild plants versus domestic plants. So they're, you know, they think they're eating a, a, a paleo diet. They're eating no such thing. <laughs> So can, can I continue on this a little bit? Because I, I definitely want to want to get to the Marshall Islands, but I'll but I have friends who do paleo. You know, I'm uh, yeah. I'm involved in you know a community of of people who are, for, for lack of a better word, biohackers. Like they're always you know measuring things and trying to get better and smarter and faster and younger and sexier and all that. And yeah. there's a big percentage of that population, you know, mostly sort of, you know, young go-getter men in their 30s, late 20s, 30s, and early 40s, um, who have embraced paleo and, and, and a fairly extreme version of paleo, maybe sort of 75% animal products and very high fat, sort of a Western price approach, you know, pound of butter yeah. with breakfast. And yeah. I gotta say, a lot of them look really good, and they they seem to be very high performance. And w- you know what? Um, what's, what sort of biomarkers good. would you look at to to assess whether this you know is is it possible that this is working for them, or is this uh, like heading well, off, I, a, heading I think off a cliff? I, th- I think they're looking good because they've got they they've they've eliminated processed food from their diet and so for a lot of them eliminating processed food and refined carbohydrates 
they get pretty cut, you know, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of those foods increase belly fat and insulin resistance and contribute to obesity and overweight, and so they get rid of all of that, and all of a sudden, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you can build pretty big muscles when you're consuming that amount of protein, and they're doing a ton of weights, and they get all into it, and, and so they probably they have probably really changed their physical fitness and so on, but what I'd like to see is I'd like to see their A1C. I'd like to see their... Um, or not, sorry, not their A1C, but their their uh, HSCRP, so their levels of inflammation. I, I'd like to see their cholesterol levels. And I'd like to, and I mean, their cholesterol levels may not be terrible, but they may be uh, somewhat excessive, especially if they're eating that much fat. Uh, and I'd like to see them in 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm 54 years of age. My cholesterol is 130. Um, I, I, you know, I was at uh, Portland's Veg Fest uh, yesterday. I'm a 54 year old woman. Okay, um, I somebody at the end of my presentation yelled out, um, you know, do some push-ups, and I, I thought, okay, I'll take off my jacket. I have a dress on. I got down. I did 40 push-ups. Huh. You know, I'm 54 years old. I still feel like I'm 20. I, I can run as fast, I can jump as high, and I can do, you know, whatever. I can, you know, I don't feel like my body's changing. <laughs> you know, I don't know how many people that are doing paleo are going to be able to say that when they hit my age. Mm, well, that's, that, that's one thing. There's a lot of people that I've interviewed, you know, Ruth Heydrich, um, you know, even even my, my mentors, you know, T. Colin Campbell and Caldwell Esselstyn, people in their, you know, late 70s or, or Mimi Kirk, uh, who's yeah. raw. Yeah, you know, I know all of those people, yeah. You know, to me, I, I, I want to listen to the people who are, like, old and, and in amazing yeah. shape. That they, yeah, exactly. They, they know, you know, when there's there's enough of them that uh, that I'm paying attention. So one one more question to the to the to the paleo uh, issue. Um, so one of the things I hear from them a lot is that cholesterol doesn't matter. That there's been a giant mistake, and that the that cholesterol has sort of become a bugaboo, and it really is not related at all to, uh, to to negative health outcomes, especially cardiac outcomes. Have you looked at at those assertions and those claims? Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know that they there that goes or flies counter to every major health organization in the world, including the World Health Organization and the Institute of Medicine. You know, they and uh, and every other major health organization I can think of. Yes, there was a study in 2010, a meta-analysis that 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 you know it sort of hit headlines, and the headlines read saturated fat doesn't matter anymore. Um, and and you know, if you actually read the paper, that's not what the paper showed at all. What the paper showed was that saturated fat may be no worse than refined carbohydrates in increasing blood cholesterol levels and causing heart disease, you know, and and that replacing saturated fats with refined carbohydrates does nothing for protecting people. If you want to protect people, you have to replace the saturated fats with unsaturated fats or unrefined carbohydrates possibly. So I think people really need to look at this research because it, you know, they're uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, they obviously didn't read the full paper. 
it was uh, just whatever uh, press release went out uh, didn't didn't really tell the whole story. So it's uh, there is the research um, uh, linking cholesterol to risk of heart disease is overwhelming. It's very strong, and it hasn't weakened. Great, thank you. That's that's very helpful, and I'm hoping it will it will help other people, and not just me, who are trying to make sense of, of you know really vastly competing claims, almost to the point where there's no there's no intersection. They're not even looking at the same you know, same data and studies. Yeah, exactly. And and you know what? We we will have the answer. It's just now we've got this whole paleo world. We've got this whole vegan world, and hey, let's <laughs> see who wins. <laughs> That's that's a good point. And in the in, in the meantime, if we have to choose, um, to me to me, you know, the most compelling evidence is sort of what you know called the blue zones, those areas where you know just look at like people who who live really well, like entire populations that are healthy into their eighties, nineties, and hundreds, and say, how do they live? Well, the thing is, is that if if you really look at it, every single every single bar none. Every single blue zone is plant-based. If you look at the, you know, even the Venn diagrams that have been done and they look at what is common between all of the people in the blue zones, it's they all eat a plant-based diet, they all eat legumes, they're all socially engaged, they're all physically active, they all have strong family ties, they don't smoke. It's the same. It doesn't matter if you're looking at Icaria, Greece, or Loma Linda, or the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, or Okinawa, Japan, or Sardinia, Italy. It doesn't matter. They're all, it's all, it's that, that's what ties them together. And, and when every single blue zone in the world is plant-based, it, it, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue. <laughs> and I, you know, I just, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that, uh, you know, plant-based diet isn't, isn't optimal nutrition when it, it clearly is in ev- everywhere in the world. <laughs> And, you know, I think that the other thing that I think is is absolutely, absolutely critical for people who are paleo to recognize, and I know this is a hard one for them, I know it's a hard one for them, but they need to really, really start to think about the big picture. You know, even if a true paleo diet was helpful, even if we could actually recreate it, which we can't, a diet can only be considered good for the human species if it's ecologically sustainable. And to me, if it's ethically justifiable. You know, we don't have a million people on this planet anymore. We've got seven, over 7 billion. If the entire population ate a paleo diet, to me, the devastation would absolutely be incalculable. We've got, you know, you think just think about it. We would need, if everybody ate the way Americans do, we'd already need four planeters to sustain this current population. If everyone ate a paleo diet, we'd need at least 10. And, and you know, we can't, we've got to start thinking big picture. We've got to think, what diet can sustain a growing population, a population that will probably hit 9 billion in very short order? Um, and ethically, you just think about it. The paleo diet uh, it completely ignores all of the ethical issues that that are of concern. We, we think we we kill 11 billion animals in North America um, for food. Imagine if everybody was eating a paleo diet. Talk about tripling that number. Hmm. Where would we? How would we do this? Right. And what kind of nightmare would that be for animals? 
Right. Well, it's, so, it's just to me, it's it's absolutely unjustifiable for people to be pro- promoting a diet that is so devastating to the to to this planet. Right. Although you know, the paleo people I, that I know would say, well, you know, of course we don't eat from factory farms. We eat from you know grass-fed beef, and uh, and some of us go yeah. hunting and all that. Um, but I also and hear, do you think you could feed the entire planet on that? People can't afford it. Most people can't afford to buy grass-fed meat and go hunting and pay three hundred sixty-five dollars a pound for their food. You know that's mm-hmm. about what it costs if you're hunting. Right. <laughs> Although you know, so but my my question is, and I come to this as as a as a a gardener, uh, an amateur farmer, a permaculturalist, it doesn't seem like, like, although, you know, if everyone ate a plant-based diet, it would be better. I'm not sure that a plant-based diet can sustain the world either. It just maybe we like kill our, you know, we kill the planet slower. Like, I'm not sure if the big, if the big problem is paleo versus vegan or if it's just the number of people we have. Do you, do you have yeah, evidence and, that, and, that a plant-based diet no, can, can really support the world? Well, it, it, it's a good point because there are some areas of the world where it's not easy to grow things and that having, you know, a, a more natural, the way it used to be kind of where you're having a few animals and some produce, you can see that that might work better in, in some areas or, or fishing a little bit. But at the rate we're going with fish, we've got fish to last us to, what, 2048 is the estimation now, unless we fish farm. Uh, we're, you know, when you think about what it takes in terms of, of, uh, you know, resources to grow lentils in, compared to, in comparison to growing meat. I mean, the numbers of people, yeah, I mean, it takes about a 20th of the resources to feed a vegan that it does to feed a, an omnivore. So, you know, one twentieth. It, 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 obviously it's going to support, a vegan diet would, would go, go a huge distance to supporting, a, um, you know, a, an ecological, uh, uh, food supply. I I think about the uh, the award-winning study by Matthews and Weber back um, what was it 2008 or some such thing where they actually showed that eating uh, a 100 percent local seven days a week, 24/7, would reduce house glass and reduce greenhouse gas emissions less than eating vegan one day a week. Mm. And that was an award-winning study. That won, like, the Best Environmental Study of the Year Award or some such thing. So it was really, really quite quite profound. And then, you know, it's, it's easy enough to do the math. Hmm. So, so that, that sounds like a great segue into what I originally wanted to talk to you about, which was the, the Marshall Islands. So the, there mm. is, as I understand, a place where it's very difficult to grow food. Could could you talk a little bit just about the Marshall Islands for folks who've never heard of them? Yeah, the, the Marshall Islands are um very, very remote set of islands, about 1,200 islands. Uh, total, you know, area of the entire country is, is 70 square miles on all of the 1,200 islands. But they are located about 2,300 miles southwest of Hawaii. And they were used as atomic bomb testing grounds after the Second World War because they're so remote. And uh, the, these islands, you know, the, the, I, I, it used to be in, in the Marshall Islands that people lived off plants and fish. 
uh, that's what they had access to. So the plants were mainly um, coconut, um, breadfruit, pandanus, uh, taro root, uh, some green leaves, uh, you know, fair, fairly limited um, uh, food supply, and then, of course, fish. And probably 50 to 60% of their calories was from coconut. And uh, these people had um, no diabetes, no heart, you know, heart disease to speak of. They were really free of chronic degenerative diseases. Um, today, uh, probably about 50% of the adults have diabetes. And uh, number one surgery on the islands is amputations due to diabetes. So it's a very, very serious issue there. And what happened basically is they switched from living off the land to living off junk food. And so they now eat um, white sticky rice, which has a glycemic index of about 83, which is higher than white table sugar, and uh, a lot of uh, meat, fatty meat, spam, you name it. And they wash it all down with a high-fructose corn syrup drink called Luau. Number one ingredient is high-fructose corn syrup. And and they eat donuts and other sweet drinks. And, and the kids' favorite snack of the kids is ramen noodles, you know, these these dried noodles that are all salty in these crinkly packages, uh, they, they're, I don't know, close to 4,000 milligrams of salt in a package. And they, they crack open a pack and sprinkle it with Kool-Aid powder. Mm. And uh, that's, you know, typical snack. So, I mean, it, you really couldn't design a diet to induce diabetes any better than the diet that these people have adopted. It's unbelievable. And so they're all dying of diabetes. And so we went in there, and um, and when I say we, I, I was invited to be part of a, a work by a, a, actually a medical mission team called Kansas Back Missions, and they've been going to the Marshall Islands for 25 years, bringing teams of oncologists and dental surgeons and just to help the people and, and uh, pretty much do it free of charge. The doctors volunteer their time and... And uh, so they've, they've been doing, you know, really quite wonderful things there for a lot of years. And they watched the epidemic uh, unfold, the diabetes epidemic unfold. And they um, they wanted to, um, you know, kind of use my uh, this book I wrote called Defeating Diabetes as a, a little bit of the um, guideline for uh, a, a research intervention project. And they asked me if I would be willing to uh, assist them with developing and implementing the, the program. We did uh, a study with five overlapping cohorts where we, you know, had a control group and an intervention group and, and then, you know, did a very aggressive diet and lifestyle intervention using a plant-based diet. We, and we did allow them to still consume some fish. We just didn't prepare it at the clinic, but they, they were permitted to consume fish. at such an important part of their traditional diet. And they... they um, you know, did exercise, and we did, you know, all sorts of health education, and and uh, we we re- really had some very remarkable uh, results as well. Wow. So I'll, I'll get to the results in a little bit, but a couple of, of <laughs> sort of thoughts and observations there. One is that when when you start, you know, eating better, whatever that looks like for you, when you sort of wake up to the fact that the standard American diet is sort of insanely poisonous and you know sort of wherever you whether it's paleo and you cut out the processed food whatever path you take away from the standard american diet appears to be a step up it's very easy i at least i found it very easy 
as a as a sort of new zealous convert to look at other people now who are like pushing their giant shopping carts full of Pepsi and lard through Costco and Sam's Club and kind of judge them and say, you know, well, it's their own fault. They're bringing them up, this upon themselves. And it was it's really helpful for me to look at the Marshall Islands to see here's a people where they really had no choice. Where, you yeah. know, if, if you wanted to eat well, like, like the overwhelming impact of availability, of economics, of trade, of culture, of family, of custom, it was like, the, you know, this giant tsunami of forces <laughs> that was, you know, that, that individual choice and responsibility had nothing to do with it, which, which really has helped me to look at people who are stuck in the various food traps in this country in a much more compassionate way. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about, you know, the, the, the cultural influences on people who are, who are all getting diabetes and, and whether there was any sort of in, individual choice. And if so, how much, how much sort of willpower did you well, need? Well, in, in the Marsh, yeah, I mean, obviously in the Marshall Islands, they they had no information about nutrition. They didn't think nutrition had anything to do with diabetes or disease. Uh, they just thought if they had a full belly, then they were well nourished. Uh, that, that that's all they cared about. Um, so, and, so, and to so them, was, to them, diabetes was just a normal part. Like this is how humans live and die. No, to them, they they thought it was just a consequence of the of of the atomic bomb testing. Oh. Um, they didn't realize it had anything to do with diet at all. Uh, most of them. I mean, they, it was just a you know just unheard of to them that diet would have anything to do with any of that. So they just thought you know food is food, and if it fills your belly, then it's all good. They they really didn't get anything beyond that. Now people in North America uh, do, but I think the problem in North America is that is that people don't you know there's a there's a new book called Fat, Sugar, and Salt. Mm-hmm. Fairly new book, and I, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard that it it probably does the best job to date of of uh, sort of exposing what industry has done to to addict people to these flavors that are naturally very dilute in nature. And when we take and concentrate these flavors, people become physically addicted, like they do to cocaine or heroin. Uh, and and so that it it becomes very very difficult for them to override that. You know that kind of need to, to to get those hits, that processed or refined, uh, salty, fatty, sugary foods will provide, and uh, and so it's not. I don't think the individual is necessarily uh, to really to blame. I think it's it's our greed and 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 it's really um, it's all about money is what it's really all about. And, uh, you, you know, how do you turn a, a 25 cent commodity like a potato into a $3 commodity like potato chips and keep people wanting to buy that instead of buying the 25 cent commodity? It's, um, it's really easy. <laughs> mm. So, so also, uh, I'm, I'm also curious about in the Marshall Islands if they thought that this was all a consequence of the atomic bomb testing, which, I think it was at that point it was it was it was all American tests, right? Yeah. Were they open to Americans coming and telling them what was wrong with them and giving them a solution? I you know I have a I have a master's of public health, and one of the things I discovered is that you know the people we could we could like legally like impose our views on were always poor people, 
and un, you know under you know people without power, people without say, people without resources, and you know us health professionals would come in, and and I was surprised at at first at how resented we were for coming in with the answers. I'm wondering was was there any of that when you arrived in the Marshall Islands? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I have to say that people were very skeptical. They don't seem to, you know, the American um, U.S. government has been giving them so much over the years. They they give them a lot of money. They fund a lot of their, you know, whatever they do. The Americans seem to fund a lot of it for them, and they have a very close relationship with Americans. A lot of their kids fight for the American Army. They have, they are allowed to, they get um, special um, allowances for, they're just allowed to immigrate. Uh, so they do have a special, you know, they're not a, I think they were at one time a protectorate of the United States, and now they're independent, but they, there's still a, 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 a very, very close ties. And, uh-huh. and so they, you don't, I mean, they, they don't like Chinese people, but they seem to like Americans just fine. Huh. Uh, <laughs> they don't like Chinese people because the Chinese people come in and take over a lot of their businesses and then pay them really, really um, poor wages uh, for working for them. So, but but uh, they they are happy with Japanese people. They're happy with Americans, even though Japanese people they were used them as slaves for years before the Americans came and took over. Uh, they've forgiven them for that because the Japanese again give so much to them now. But the interesting response that we had was disbelief. They did. they didn't really believe that the program would work, but nonetheless, they all wanted to be on it. And so, when they came to get screened for diabetes, if they were told that they didn't have diabetes, some of them would actually cry. They wanted to be part of the program so badly. And why? Well, because they got free food. We had an exercise gym. They got to learn, you know, dances and doing fun exercise things and. They just thought it'd be something to do. <laughs> There's no work there. Uh-huh. Um, so people were really actually very excited. Now, when they started seeing the results, uh, that, that got their interest. Because within a week or two, people who had had you know, pain in their legs for 20 years, it was gone. Uh-huh. You know, their blood sugars would come down 100 points in two weeks. And so they... I mean, it's, it, it was pretty convincing to them when they started to see the numbers and how they felt. They could sleep through the night. They weren't constipated anymore. Their fuzzy brains cleared. They just, all of this stuff started to happen that when you have a blood sugar that's up at four, five, six hundred milligrams per deciliter, you, you start to feel better when that comes down. And, uh, your, your body just starts working, uh, better. So, yeah, really very, very interesting. So we, and of course, we started with the leaders. So our very first interventions, we had, you know, the mayor and the assistant mayor and the and different uh, senators and the president and whatever. We had all of the leaders that we could go through the program. We even did special, you know, um, uh, interventions just for the Nidagella or the politicians. So, and, and very nepotistic society. It, it, you know, when you convince the leaders, the, the rest of the people seem to get kind of interested. Mm. So, so roughly how long did it take for, for people 
for for both for for the participants to realize that this was this was a good thing and to get sort of clinical data that you could then you know publish and and use as kind of as social you know as policy public policy health information and proof that that this really works well within 2 weeks we started getting data because we were doing A1Cs we were doing um well of course 2 weeks you're not going to get good A1Cs but by three months, we got good A1Cs for sure. But we did HSCRPs. We did, you know, all the blood glucose tests. We did, I mean, they were doing the blood sugar daily, three times, four times, five times a day. Uh, and so, you know, we, we did you know, all their blood cholesterol, triglycerides. We did all of that. We did, you know, insulin tests. or um, So, you know, all of those things uh, were coming pretty early on in. Now, the, the sad part is we actually have, still haven't uh, published our, our results. We are going to be, that's my next project, is getting, getting these results published, but we have had several drafts of our, of, our, um, of our research. One of the biggest problems is we lost a lot of data, and we lost a lot of data because the blood work, a lot of it couldn't be done in Madro. It had to get shipped to Hawaii, and when it's not held properly or it's held too long... You, you lose you lose your data, and that happened way too many times. Mm. Okay. That was very, very unfortunate. But uh, it was beyond our control, that's for sure. Right. We had to rely on the lab there. So, so what's the situation now? Did you know now that people saw that they could get better? You know, do they have access to healthier food? Are they, uh, you know, are you mm-hmm. sort of encouraging you know farming and gardening on the on the islands themselves, or are people you know has it has it sort of? I've been involved in a lot of health interventions that worked really well, and then when the intervention ended, everybody sort of slipped back. Can you, like, what's yeah. what's what's been happening yeah. since? Yeah. Well, well, uh, uh, you know, I'm happy to say that we're not stopping. Uh, we just had Antonia Demas. I don't know if you know who she is, but she is um, a PhD nutrition person who who has done amazing work in schools and with, um, with prisoners and uh, putting them on vegan diets and watching the changes in their behavior and their school grades and so forth. And and so she's, we're, we have, basically the government's turned over the, the, um, uh, curriculum in the schools, the hospital food service, all of that to, to our, our people. And so we're, we're, you know, we're, we're starting to look at how we can affect the, the entire population, including children and so forth. The research is over, but the interventions continue. And so people have access to, you know, this kind of information. And basically, um, when we arrived, um, you didn't see people walking very much. People took a taxi even if they were going a block because people were ashamed of walking because walking showed that you didn't have 50 cents to take a taxi. So it was only the poorest of the poor that had to walk anywhere. Um, the junk in the grocery stores, it was junk. That was pretty much it. There wasn't the only healthy food was there for the um, you know, the rebellies or the people that were coming from other countries, uh, wanting that, you know, pro- produce, even though it was expensive. So it was, it was really not great. And, and when we arrived, I immediately went to the grocery stores and, and said, you're, you know, you're going to have a, a much greater demand for these foods. Listed them off and said, you need to start thinking about ordering more. 
And so we actually started partnering with the grocery stores, and they were very, they didn't believe it. They didn't think anything like that hmm. would happen. But and, and I can remember going in when I told them, you know, you need to order soy milk, and you need to order 80 cases. And they didn't. And they ran out, and people were getting mad at them. And they, they, you know, I went in to talk to the manager, and he said, he put, as soon as I walked in, he put his hands over his face. He said, I know, I know, I know, I feel it, it's like, you know, I, I've ordered it, it's all coming, <laughs> you know. So, so people really, and, and, and then they started having little health sections, and next thing you know, they're ordering barley and flax seeds and, and legumes, piles of legumes and nuts and seeds and all sorts of healthy foods that weren't really available before. And uh, one store started a health food section of their store, and they started um, a program where they would buy cases of, of uh, apples and oranges to be free snacks for their employees. And, you know, just all sorts of things started happening. And, and, and then one of the really exciting things was the people actually started getting that that walking was a really good thing for them and and now the government actually closes the roads early in the morning so people can walk and um and they they have a walkathons on a regular basis and they brought in walking shoes from you know boxes to give to people uh for three dollars a pair or whatever that are in pretty decent shoes too it's amazing uh, so all sorts of things have have happened. It's it's really quite quite uh, astounding. And they have now they we we're actually growing all of the the areas that uh, between the hospital buildings are now used as gardens. And and uh, they're you know just growing gardens all over the place. And they've got Saturday farmers market or Sunday farmers market. I can't really, I think it's Saturday actually. And so there's just all kinds of things happening. It's actually really exciting to see. Wow. So it sounds like you know, some entrepreneur could set up like a, a health retreat there and rich people would come from the West to, uh, yeah. to, to, to undergo the Marshallese miracle. <laughs> I mean, there's still honestly a long way to go because so many people are so poor that it's like one pot of rice for supper and a tiny bit of whatever they can afford. But the change is, it, it, it is really quite, quite remarkable. Mm. And uh, it's it's interesting to see because there are several people that that uh, several Marshallese that used to be diabetic and are no, no longer diabetic who have set quite an example and people are really trying to do what they're doing. So right. let's before before we end let's let's talk about rice because um, yeah. w- one of the things I read in an article you wrote about the the, the Marshall Islands is. That it turns out that certain types of brown rice were actually higher on the glycemic index, which which I guess is is really important for diabetics to not to be dumping lots of sugar into their blood. You know, white rice, for me, when I got into this world, was really demonized. Uh, you know, it's yeah. a ter- it's a terrible thing if you're if you're a vegetarian, if you're a vegan, you eat brown rice and you know lentils. Yeah, yeah. What's with the, what's the deal with white and brown rice? It's much it's more complicated than I thought. Yeah, it's much more complicated than most people realize. There's, I mean, rice is really complicated now with the concerns even about uh, arsenic. <laughs> but anyway, um, it, 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 rice has been a dietary staple throughout the world for a lot of years. And, you know, when they first started making white rice, we started seeing people dying of beriberi and pellagra and all of these horrible vitamin B deficiency diseases. So now they fortify the rice with these, these nutrients. 
But if you really think about it from a global perspective, um, rural Chinese, uh, Japanese, who've been eating white rice, it's, it's not so much the starchy staple that kills people as what they're putting on the starchy staple <laughs> if, if they're not eating processed foods. So, you know, if you're, if you're, you can see in Japanese and rural Chinese that still eat white rice, they're putting a bunch of vegetables with it, they're eating moderately, they don't overconsume calories, they'll, they'll do okay. But, but uh, you know, brown rice is because brown rice, you're not getting the, uh, you know, brown rice, you're getting the fiber, you're getting way more phytochemicals, you're getting way more tra- trace, vi- you know, trace mineral forks. So you're all, always better off getting, get, having brown rice compared to white rice. However, yes, there are some brown rices that have a higher glycemic index than white rice. And the reason is really very simple. The glycemic index is based on or the, the impact that a food has on your blood sugar depends somewhat on the relative ratio of glucose to fructose and other sugars in, in the food and how fast those sugars are absorbed. And in rice, you've got either a lot of amylose or a lot of amylopectin. And if it's mainly amylose, it has a much lower glycemic index, regardless of whether it's white or brown rice. Uh, if it has a lot of amylopectin, it's got a higher glycemic index. So, for example, the rice in the Marshall Islands, the white rice, uh, the Calrose white sticky rice, has a glycemic index of 83. The Calrose uh, sticky brown rice has a glycemic index of 87 despite the fact that it's got more fiber. The reason it's got a glycemic index of 87 is because it's even lower in amylose than the white rice. Um, When you compare like foods, whether it's white versus brown rice or white versus brown bread, the difference in glycemic index is much less than you would expect because there are so many things that impact glycemic index. It's impacted by the lightness and fluffiness of bread, for example. So, you know, white bread might be at a glycemic index of 74, and white bread might, I'm sorry, brown bread might be a glycemic index of 73. Because it's light and fluffy, it's broken down and absorbed into the bloodstream at a very similar rate. So with rice, it really has, it's all about amylose versus amylopectin. That doesn't mean that the brown rice with a GI of 87 is less healthy than the white rice with a GI of 83. It's actually still way healthier than the white rice, even though it's absorbed into the bloodstream more quickly. As soon as you put some lentils or chickpeas or vegetables on top of that rice, your glycemic index will go down. It will be a lower glycemic impact or a slower glycemic impact. The fact that it's got more fiber, it's got more minerals, it's got more phytochemicals, all of that would weigh more heavily than the amount of the the glycemic index that it has the four extra points on the glycemic index. Mm. So when you, when you when, yeah, so when you look at cultures around the world, a lot of them consume white rice and have been for some decades, I guess, or maybe even centuries, um, and, are, and are fine as long as they're having a, a whole food plant-based diet all around it. That's correct. And they're not eating other processed foods. They're not drinking Coke and eating chips and doing all of that. Look at traditional Japanese. 
You know, they're, that's, that's their one more refined grain and that's it. And you know, the thing, and this is another thing that I think is really critical. If you look at the refined grains that people in North America eat, they're mainly wheat products. And the wheat products, you, nobody eats a bowl of white flour. Nobody. <laughs> people eat a bowl of white rice with a bunch of beans and vegetables on top. But people don't eat a bowl of white flour before they, they, they eat the white flour. Well, first of all, white flour, you've, t- yes, you've taken out the German bran and all the phytochemicals and all the good stuff. But they don't eat it just with all, everything taken out. First, they add a bunch of crap to it before they eat it. So they're adding, like, you know, they're adding sugar, they're adding fat, they're adding salt, they're adding artificial flavors and chemicals and preservatives and all of that, and then they eat it. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's a whole different ballgame. If you're just eating white rice like that, and you're not adding all that sugar and fat and salt and all of that, it's not nearly as damaging as the white flour products. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, well, this this has been really really interesting. So, and I, and, I, and I love that no matter sort of what how how uh, what seems to me to be sort of a very detailed or esoteric question, you've got so much obviously so much knowledge and and research background and um, you know the, the, you, you you really you re, you really respect the data, which you know should, should you know people, what it does. Yeah, it does us a huge disservice not to. Um, because if we ignore the stuff when, you know, that's one of the things in becoming vegan that we're so careful about is we're not just giving it's all sugar coated. We're, you know, it's, it, that doesn't do us any service at all. We've got to look at where we're going wrong, where we can go wrong, where people commonly go wrong and how we avoid that. So, and the only way to do that is to really look at the data. When you look at the data, you see, the holes in in vegan that people do lack um, often vitamin B12, that they often do lack. You know, if you look at Epic Oxford and the people consuming under 525 milligrams of calcium a day, they end up with with um, an increased risk of bone fractures. People that you know are are uh, low on their essential fatty acids, that there's a possibility that it could increase risk of of heart disease and so on and so on and we need to look at that and then we just need to figure out how to solve it it's easy it's not difficult to solve those problems at all we just need to recognize them first right so uh brenda if people want to know more about you to uh, to find your books to find your writings um to hire you for for consultations and and talks where should they go um, they can go to my website, which is www.brendadavisrd.com, or they can e- email me at brendadavis at telus.net, and telus is T-E-L-U-S. Great. So you, you welcome people's emails if they have questions or they oh, need sure. some help. You know, um, the thing is, to be honest, I, I get a lot of emails every day, and I I, that's the reason I've written these books. So if you, if you don't find the answers in the books, then, you know, email me and ask me. But it, I would be working full-time to try to answer emails. I do do consults, but I have to charge for them. If it's a simple email that I can answer in a sentence or two and don't have to do research or, you know, analyses, then, you know, I'm happy to do that. Uh, yeah, I would, and I would. always happy to, yeah, to do lectures that, you know. 
Excellent. Yeah, I, I sucked in my breath a little bit when you gave out your email address so freely. I understand uh, how passionate you are and how generous with your time. But I would certainly say to people, you know, look, go to the website, look at the articles, look at the books, like read the FAQs first before you ask the author a question. <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, a little yeah. pet, pet peeve of mine as well that, uh, you know, that people often will, um, will not take not take the initiative to go search for themselves a little bit. Yes, and, exactly. And please go to Michael Greger's website and do a search on whatever it is because he has answered so many of these questions in uh, nutritionfacts.org. And the other the two places that I think are really just have such a wealth of information. The other one is veganhealth.org. That's Jack Norris and he has looked at like the issues on soy and and uh, B12, his articles are, you know, 40, 50 pages long in some cases, and they really look at this stuff in detail. And it's all there free, and he's got a great blog as well. And, and same with Michael Greger. You can be on his, his listserv, and then, and then he just, uh, every day you'll get this little, um, little article or a little two-minute video clip on whatever the topic of the day is, and they're quite entertaining and don't take a lot of time to to watch and and of course he's got he's got the list of all the topics available as well right and and he's hilarious he's hilarious (laughs) all right well brenda davis thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today i encourage people brenda davis rd.com a whole bunch of books um a, a lifetime of of ethical and honorable and really incisive research and and publications and sharing. So uh, it's an honor to talk to you. And um, Well, thank you so much, Howard. Well, thank you so much Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. Take care. You too.